What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says that he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food and one of you says to him, Depart in peace, be warm and filled, but you do not give him the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God? You do well. Even demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. And Father, we humble ourselves before you in this hour as we now open the word of God to continue in an attitude of worship. We want to give you our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength, loving you, Lord, by letting our whole being be open to what you would want to say to us through your holy and spirit-inspired word. We ask, Lord, prepare us each accordingly. You know what that means for me and each person in this room under the hearing of your word this day. We ask every intent and purpose behind why you inspired these things by your spirit would find its maximum impact in speaking personally and directly to each of our hearts this morning. Speak, Lord. We want to hear your voice. We ask you to bless your word now in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. 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 You may be seated. You know, if I were to say this morning, even with really great passion, the building is on fire, we have to alert everyone and we need to escape because it is on fire. But then after I said that, I kind of just maybe casually walked towards the back to the coffee pot, got myself a few squirts of coffee in a cup and started putting a little cream and sugar in it and mixing it up casually and then came back and sat down and opened my Bible and, and just started reading some sections of Scripture, that would obviously be a little bit odd. In fact, you would probably look at me, justifiably so, and think, does he really believe what he just said? I mean, he said the building's on fire. He indicated he believed the building is on fire and claimed that with his mouth, but his actions and his behavior are kind of saying otherwise. And that would be a justifiable observation because what I said I believed, I'm actually doing something that doesn't line up with what I claimed with my words or what I indicated I believed as the building was on fire. There is a direct contradiction in a very serious matter. And so the only fair conclusion would be for you to say, though he says he believes, 
the building is on fire. It's obvious that he really doesn't believe that. Because if you genuinely believe that, you would act in accordance with that because that's a very serious matter. Well, in that same way, you could then say it's kind of an empty profession that I made. It lacks sincerity because if I really believed the building was on fire, my actions would demonstrate through my works and the things that I did what I actually believed if I sincerely believed that. Well, the same thing is true spiritually. The Bible teaches, James is trying to say here specifically, that genuine faith will demonstrate itself through legitimate actions. There will be works. There will be outward fruit to manifest what's going on internally in the heart. See, the reality is this. We cannot see faith. Faith is something inward that happens inside of the human heart. Only God sees what's true of the human condition, the inward part of our lives. We can't see faith. It's an invisible thing. However, true faith, the Bible says, will produce outward fruit in time via actions that are lived out as the heart causes the life to live in a way that's corresponding with what it truly believes. It will demonstrate itself through godly works in a person's life, kind of validating and verifying outwardly what's really going on on the inside. Jesus said much the same thing that James is trying to say here. Jesus said, you will know a tree that is the kind of tree it is genetically by its fruit. In other words, if uh, a tree claims to be an apple tree, if they could speak, if a tree produces apples, well, then you can know. Well, that's obviously an apple tree because it's producing apples. Now, if a, a tree says it's an apple tree, but it never makes any apples and it actually produces oranges, well, you could then justifiably argue, look, I don't care if you say you're an apple tree, <laughs> you're not making apples. So you can't be an apple tree and you're producing oranges, which are the exact opposite anyway. And what James is trying to say to us here in our text this morning is in spiritual life, what one believes will always be shown by our behavior. Our behavior will always validate the proof of what we truly believe in what's going on in our heart. So James says, in light of these things there in verse 14, if you'll draw your attention, he begins by simply asking a question. What does it profit of what value, he says, my brethren, if someone says, that's the key word, circle that, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works. So he asks this searching question regarding somebody who makes a verbal profession to have faith in Jesus, but he says their life does not demonstrate that as an evidence of what they have claimed. He says, what does it profit? The idea again, of what value is it? He's saying of what use, of what purpose really of usefulness is it? If someone says, again, that's the key word, someone says, that's the emphasis, that they have faith. The idea is a person claims something along the lines of, well, yeah, I believe in Jesus, or I'm a Christian. I mean, I'm an American. Of course I'm a Christian, right? I'm a Christian, or, or, or I prayed that prayer uh, that they say you're supposed to pray to become a Christian, or I have faith, and I'm a follower of Jesus. They make these kind of claims with their mouth, but he says, but they don't have works. That is, works that are legitimate corresponding works the Bible speaks about would accompany someone who is a Christian. Christ-like conduct, living in ways that manifest and demonstrate outwardly 
that your faith in the Lord is actually working. That it's a genuine saving faith that actually is working in your life in such a way demonstrating that it's a genuine, sincere faith in Christ. That is, their, their life doesn't demonstrate any of the good works that will always be the natural byproduct of a person whose life has been changed and transformed by the power of the Spirit through incepting Jesus Christ into your life. There's no evidence of spiritual works or Christian obedience that should be present when someone is following the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me illustrate it this way. It's the same thing if someone to, for example, claim to be on a diet, but then there's no difference in your eating habits. Well, you may be claiming to be on a diet. You may even desire to be on a diet, but you haven't yet decided to go on a diet. You're, you're saying, oh, I'm on a diet. Well, no, you're not on a diet yet because you still eat the exact same way. Or if someone were to say, I'm, 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 I've decided to train to run a marathon, and then they never get off the couch. They never put on sneakers. Quite frankly, they don't even walk one block, let alone run anywhere. You could very justifiably say, look, you desire to do those things, maybe genuinely desire to, but you haven't decided to actually do it yet. You haven't made the decision to do it yet because your words are nothing more than a false profession because your practice reveals it's not true of your life yet. And this is the idea that James is getting to here in the scripture. Again, the emphasis on the word says one has faith and is a follower of Christ because it's easy. It's very easy to say the right things. But the point the Bible is making here is we say something perhaps, but what you say and then what you do is saying something completely different. What you're doing is saying something different than what your words or profession are. And it's a contradiction of what's going on in your life. Now, in light of that, James then follows up asking that question, the end of verse 14, can faith save him? Now, I think the other translations capture the language here a little bit better. So it's not confusing. Other translations render this, can such faith save him uh, one translation says could that sort of faith save a man's soul uh, the idea is if we make a profession but then there's nothing attached to it in the way that we live can that kind of insincere faith james is saying which is merely nothing more than kind of just words saying the right things with our mouths there's no heart behind it. he says can that kind of faith really be acceptable to god who knows the true condition of the heart and actually provide salvation as if somehow it were genuine and God were unable to see it. The implied answer is no, that's not really saving faith. It's a profession of faith. And it's very interesting. I would encourage you, those who do crusade evangelism and who are very fruitful in what they do, take notice how a lot of times they will say things when people come forward, pray a prayer at one of their meetings, they'll say, for example, you know, 300 people made a profession of faith. You ever notice why they say that? Because they understand even in their labor of gospel preaching and evangelism that that, that was a profession of faith, but only God knows if there was a, a genuineness to their faith or was it maybe just an emotional thing where people by nature tend to follow crowds where everybody gets up and they get caught up in the moment and so th there's a, a moving maybe emotionally but they don't genuinely in their will believe those things and surrender those things over to the Lord and they just go right back to living the same way so that's why they say a, a profession of faith 
there was this many professions of faith. Whether there were conversions or not, they know that's between God and a person. And that will bear itself out in evidence of fruit in time. And so James is sort of saying the same thing here, that sometimes there can be an empty verbal profession and God always sees beyond words. Remember, the Bible tells us that God says on numerous occasions, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. See, God sees below and God knows what's truly going on in the heart condition. Now, let me just say very clearly, please hear me. Do not misconstrue the context here and what James is saying or teaching. He is not in any way challenging or contradicting the New Testament doctrine that we are saved by grace through faith alone and that it's not of works. The Bible is very clear in its teaching that forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal life in heaven is not something we work for. It's not something we can earn by religious efforts and activities and we have enough just do a good thing and, and follow certain rules and rituals or traditions of our church that eventually we kind of weigh out the scales and we tip it over and eventually God grants us access into heaven by a multitude of good acts or even one good, uh, you know, perhaps religious activity or some ritual or sacrament that, that grants us spiritual and eternal life. The Bible is very, very clear. We have to be willing to admit our need and that only Jesus' work is sufficient to provide forgiveness for our sins and to give us eternal life to be able to go to heaven after we die. That what Jesus did on the cross was necessary because if we could do any religious activity, well, there was no need for Jesus to come. Why would the Father in heaven send his own dear son to the earth and let his son, Jesus Christ, be spit on and mocked and mistreated and abused and live in this world if we could just do enough good stuff and do a few sacraments or religious activities and kind of clean ourselves enough to make ourselves good enough to God. The whole point that Jesus came is he needed to do a work that we cannot do for ourselves. So Jesus came and lived the life that was sinless that I don't live and you don't live and then he died sacrificially in our place offering holy sinless blood acceptable to a, a God who needed that as sufficient payment and then rose from the dead in such a way that now he's the living savior and we have to accept and believe that we need Jesus' work for ourselves. And that we cannot earn it somehow or offer God some set of good works. We have to trust in the finished work, the Bible teaches, of Jesus Christ upon the cross and that he's alive from the dead and a living Savior who therefore has the power to save. And if we depend on what Jesus did and his work by faith and we receive it for ourselves as a free gift and it must be received, that is how the Bible tells us salvation, forgiveness of sins, eternal life comes to us as an assurance. We must come to Jesus and ask it from him because he provided it through his work. That's why the Bible tells us whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Paul in Romans 10 says it this way. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, notice, and believe in your heart God's raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, being made right with God, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Notice the emphasis there on believing, not working. Upon believing upon Jesus, believing what is true that we need to be saved, coming to him, asking him to save us, and the confession of our mouth is just the way whereby we experience that 
by believing what's going on in our hearts. So please do not misunderstand as we look at this text this morning together. That's not the point that James is making is that we can work for our salvation. The scripture is very clear that Jesus' work provides us salvation. What James is trying to indicate is when you are genuinely saved, there will be works that prove that you've experienced salvation. And so James is saying, does this exist in your life? Does this exist in the life of someone who's claiming to be a Christian? He's saying, beware of the danger of just saying the right things if and when you don't really sincerely believe those things yet in your heart and thereby deceive yourself with a false profession. God sees below the surface. Mere lip service is never going to be acceptable to an all-knowing God. We may do that to one another, but we're never going to somehow win over with God because God cares about something much deeper than just lip service. He cares about our hearts and he doesn't want us to be deceived about our condition and God actually loves us enough to challenge us to say you say that, but is that really true yet about you? And so God loves us enough to make sure we are right in our spiritual condition because he doesn't want us to be deceived about spiritual and eternal matters. In fact, let me leave you with the words of Jesus before we proceed to verse 15. Jesus said this. Listen to his statements. Jesus said this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, Have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? Lord, we we were involved in the church. We did lots of good works. We did everything everybody else was doing. And Jesus said, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So again, Jesus says, there will be those profession, Lord, Lord. He's my Lord. I'm a Christian. I I even do the Christian works and the church stuff that everybody else... But Jesus is going to say, but you never knew me. You knew church. You knew Christianity. But you never knew Christ yourself. And so Jesus warns of this very dangerous deception that can happen to a human heart. And James here, by the Spirit of God, is emphasizing this point to us, driving it home, and wanting to illustrate the danger of this. He kind of uses an analogy to show the great error of saying just good stuff and right things, but not really ever acting upon it responsibly. So he uses an analogy in verse 15. He says, let's say, for example, a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food. And one of you says to him, depart in peace, be warmed and filled. God bless you. I hope everything works out. But you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, What does it profit of what value is it? So he's saying, if you see a member of the family of God, notice he says a brother or sister, someone in the family of God, not just someone, he's talking about somebody that's a fellow Christian, a brother or sister, not some stranger on the street and you don't know their story, someone who's a brother or sister in the family of God and they don't even have, notice, the basic necessities of survival. He's not talking about do they have the latest iPhone watch or something like that or you know, do they, do they, does their cable TV still work? They can't pay their cable bill. Oh my goodness. He's saying they don't have the basic necessities. They don't even have clothes and they don't even have a meal for the day. I mean, you're talking basic necessities, destitute in their condition and you can discern an obvious need 
of the basic survival needs missing. And in response, he says, you use your words to say the right things. Oh, that's a shame. I mean, but Lord bless you. God's the provider. Maybe even you get spiritual enough, you pray for him. I pray God would keep you warm out there and you're, you know, in, in the freezing weather without your clothes. And I pray that God will, will send a meal to you in Jesus' name. And I just pray that he'll take good care. And you, you do the spiritual antics. You say all the right things, but then you do nothing to address the problem directly. You don't give him what's needed. James says there, verse 16, what is that profit? <laughs> That's useless, he says. There's nothing of value or of help to that. It's just, his point is, it's just empty words. It's saying the right things. It's, it's communicating what sounds accurate, but it's just empty words. It's nothing of resolution to the situation. And I think two things are learned from this. First of all, when we do see a genuine, obvious need of someone among the family of God, a, a genuine, obvious need, it is important to God that we respond to it correctly and that we address that through loving actions. You know, we need to be careful of just saying what sounds spiritual and neglecting what's right. You know, sometimes it is more spiritual to you know, open our wallet and help somebody out than it is just to pray a prayer for them or just to say, you know, God will provide all your needs, brother. And we're going to go out for lunch and uh, I hope somehow you, you make it through the rest of the... I mean, there's a time to actually do something. And the most spiritual response is to provide a resolution to help. God's love is demonstrated and displayed through action. John says it this way in 1 John 3. He says, whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need... And then shuts up his heart from him. He says, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word and tongue, but in deed and in truth. And there is a time for us to act, to resolve, to genuinely react and respond to the legitimate need. And notice the primary biblical instruction, and study this in the New Testament, is taking care of one another among the family of God. I'm not saying that it is inappropriate to help strangers at times, to help the poor of this world. That's not what I'm saying. But notice in the New Testament, the predominant emphasis is upon the family of God taking care of one another. Family first. That we have a genuine awareness of that person's situation and, and a level of, of stewardship is connected. And our foremost obligation is to take care of brothers and sisters. To take care of the family First, And James' point by illustration here, which he's conveying, is God allows us at times to become aware of a need. And when we do, just talking about a need and never acting in response to that need, he says that's not a sufficient substitute for actually doing something. He's trying to make the point, talk is cheap, action is what matters. And here's how this connects to what James is teaching. What James is trying to convey is, is in the same way to say the right things, but to do nothing to respond to the genuine spiritual need to help the person in poverty in the same way to talk spiritual, but then never truly come to Jesus to experience what we need for the poverty of our soul. He's saying it doesn't do anything. You can say all the right Bible verses, you can claim all the right Christian things and do the right lingo, but if you never act upon the condition of the poverty of your soul, James says, it's no profit. It does nothing of value. That's why he says, verse 17, thus also faith by itself, 
with no response, if it doesn't have works, is dead. It's valueless. It's useless. The idea is mere profession alone without reality is powerless. You could say it this way. He says it's dead. If you emphatically claim this person is alive, they are alive, but yet they lay there dead. They have no pulse. Their body's not moving. You may sincerely profess it, but you're wrong. They're dead. If they have no pulse, if there's no life within their being, you're wrong whether you profess it or not. And if we claim to have faith and say the right thing spiritually, but never take a personal step to receive from the life of Jesus Christ what we need for the spiritually dead condition of our soul, the Bible says we remain dead without any true spiritual life going on inside of us. And in the same way James used that analogy of a person who's naked and destitute and hungry, the Bible is very clear that we have tremendous spiritual need in our life, all of us, that needs to be addressed. For example, we're all naked and uncovered before a holy God. And God sees the sinfulness of our condition, whether we make it look good to everyone else or not, God sees because everything's naked before the eyes of God. And he knows that there's a, a condition of sin in each and every one of our lives that needs to be addressed. And every one of us is like that person who's hungry. There's a, there's a genuine hunger in your soul that causes you to have a nagging emptiness until that is filled with Jesus Christ himself. Because Jesus said, I am the bread of life and he who comes to me shall never hunger. And there will always be a hunger and an emptiness on a daily basis until you receive the life of Jesus Christ, the bread of life that was meant for your soul to fulfill you. And Jesus, the Bible teaches as well as we come to him, can clothe us with his righteousness to cover our filthy sinfulness. He can clothe and robe us with his righteousness to make us right before God. Well, you know how people never like to be challenged on spiritual matters. So James here, he, he kind of pictures in his mind a dispute starts to happen. He says, but someone will say, as this starts to be brought up, you have faith and I have works. You have your way, I have my way, the idea. Show me your faith without your works, James says, and I will show you my faith by my works. So he pictures someone becoming, imagine this, defensive. And they start to become defensive to him challenging their spiritual condition. And we all know people don't like to be challenged regarding their spiritual condition because that offends our human pride. So he envisions someone naturally now kind of arguing. And the, the basis of the argument James envisions in his mind is someone basically saying, look, uh, you do things your way with God. I do things my way with God. And we're all different, okay? And we all have our own way. And some people, we, we kind of, we inherit our set of religious works and we do those things and we follow those traditions. And, and we don't need this faith in Jesus, born again, get saved stuff that you keep talking to us about. We kind of have our way of doing our thing. Or others may say something along the lines of, look, some people relate to God in their heart and it is a private thing. And it's very personal and private and, and we just don't talk about it or need to show it. Other people just relate to God outwardly and that's how they are. But just because I live the way I live, don't you challenge me somehow that I may not be right with God. And kind of they, they, they become defensive of it. And the claim here, James, is kind of indicating as someone trying to say 
that faith and works are, are mutually exclusive. They don't have to function together as evidence of what's happened. And isn't it interesting how God knows human beings and how we try and defend ourselves, especially when it comes in some way of having to kind of hold off from confronting what might be our true spiritual condition because we don't want to have to confront that in our humanity. So he kind of pictures here, God does someone almost beginning to get defensive and argue this off. Well, James, under the inspiration of the Spirit, claims in verse 18, listen, I'll show you my faith by my works. I will show you my faith. What James is wanting to say, another translation renders this, I will show you my faith by what I do. James is saying my faith in Christ is real, man, because Jesus is alive. And he's saying, because I am following someone who's alive, it actually works and it does something for me. James is saying, it changed me. And it challenges me every day of my life as I follow Jesus. It influences my life and it's working in my life, he's trying to say. You know, John says in his writing in 1 John 1, 6, if we say that we have fellowship with the Lord and yet walk in darkness we lie and do not practice the truth. He then says in the second chapter, chapter 2, verse 6, he who says he abides in Jesus ought himself to walk as Jesus walked. So again, th these things do correspond. Whether we get defensive about it or not, the Bible says, listen, don't lie to yourself. Humble yourself. Be open to that reality. Don't get defensive over such a thing that matters so much. Well, wanting to emphasize this even more he then goes on verse 19 to probe deeper he says you believe that there's one god you do well good he says even demons believe and they tremble but do you want to know O foolish man he says that faith without works is dead again wanting to emphasize that in spiritual life at the heart of the matter listen at the heart of the matter is always the matter of the heart he now uses here in verse 19 demons as an object lesson. He says, you believe in the existence of God? That's good. You're doing well. He said, there's, that's better than some people are. And he says, you've done well. You believe in the existence of God, that there's one true and living God? Great. He says, that is a good start. You've done well. But he says, please know that's not sufficient spiritually in order to be right with God because even demons believe in God. And they even tremble at the presence of the living God, have a fear and a reverence for him. Think about it. Demons believe in God's existence. They believe there's one true and living God. Demons are accurate in their theological understanding of who God is. Where do they come? From God creating them initially. They're fallen angelic spirits. They've come from the presence of the living God and from the throne of God and his son, Jesus Christ. And they operate and function in the spiritual and eternal dimension. So they have firsthand experience of what's true about God. They know what's true about Jesus. You could say demons are sound and accurate in their doctrine. They, they see these things. They experience the spiritual dimension. That's why they're very good at deceiving people because they know how true it is. They don't want people to believe what's true. James even says here, demons even fear God and tremble at his power and authority to judge. Yet demons, though they believe mentally what is right, demons are not submitted in their heart towards God. Demons are not living in proper relationship with God, right? 
Demons are not living in submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ. They're functioning in rebellion to him. They believe what's accurate, but they're functioning in direct rebellion to Jesus. They believe what's accurate, but demons are not going to be accepted into heaven just because they know the right facts. They're not in right relationship with the Lord. And in the same way, it is so vital that we understand with human beings, human beings, we can believe the right facts spiritually. Of course we can. We can have a genuine reverence for God. Maybe we're taught right things. We came to some of our own conclusions. Maybe we read some of the Bible. And there are people who say, look, I believe God's real. I believe in the existence of God. I believe Jesus is the Son of God. I believe he died on the cross for the sins of the world and that he rose from the dead and, and that he was born of a... I believe those things. Yeah, I believe that. I believe that. And they may believe the right information, but listen, demons believe the right information. There's a difference between just intellectually assenting to the right information and it actually having an impact internally in your heart for you personally. The idea is that right information has never transferred the long distance of the 18 inches from the human head down into the human heart, which is the soul and the essence of who we really are in our being, the eternal part of us. And the danger here, he says, is these truths. They're just information. It's just head knowledge to some people. It's never impacted their heart and they haven't yet surrendered to those truths in a personal way where it's influenced their life. It's never become real. It's never come to terms with their inner being and their own soul to say, yes, he didn't just die on the cross for sins. He died on the cross for my sins because I deserve to go to hell. And if he didn't die for me, I can't be forgiven. And if he didn't raise from the dead, I couldn't have this living relationship with him to know his love and to experience God in my life in a personal, relational way. See, the danger he's concerned about is there are people who know things about Jesus, but as Jesus himself said, they know things about Jesus, but they don't actually know Jesus. I can illustrate this. There are people who know things about my wife, but they don't know my wife the way I know my wife. I know my wife. I don't just know things about her. I know my wife intimately, personally. And in the same way, spiritually, that applies. People can know things about Jesus, but the question is, do they know Jesus? There is a difference there. And James says it is a foolish thing, he says, oh man, dangerous to think intellectual agreement to what's true spiritually is genuine commitment to the Lord. We have to be careful of this danger because it does exist. Well, James is going to cite now two biblical examples from the Old Testament, one a prominent Jewish man, the other a Gentile pagan woman. And he's going to show how both of these individuals, despite their backgrounds, had genuine faith that demonstrated itself by their actions. What they sincerely believed was shown in it working itself out in their actions and how they lived. So he says, verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that his faith was, look at it, working together with his works and by works faith was made perfect. So he refers to Abraham, the founding father, the patriarch of the Jewish people, and how he was known as a man of great faith. God gave Abraham a promise of bringing life. And the Bible says Abraham believed that promise. 
Some of you know the backstory. If you don't, bear with me. Abraham and Sarah, his wife, did not have a child. They were barren. And they couldn't have a child. They were beyond the age of childbearing, couldn't produce life on their own. It was impossible unless God gave it to them. And it tells us in Genesis 15 that God told Abraham that he's going to powerfully work in his life and give him that child and that his descendants would be innumerable as the stars of the sky. And the Bible tells us that Abraham believed God and that promise made from God. And in time, as he believed God's word, God fulfilled his promise. They conceived they had a child named Isaac, the child of promise. And then years later, after enjoying that promised child as their heir, knowing that was the heir, the promise of God for their life, then in Genesis 22, which is what James is quoting there in verse 21, the story that happened, in Genesis 22, years later, God asked Abraham to go to Mount Moriah and to sacrifice and offer his son Isaac on the altar as an act of worship. And you can read the account in Genesis 22 there. It tells us in verses 1 through 14 how Abraham in faith obeyed God, went to Mount Moriah, went up to that mountain and, and with his son as an act of worship began making the preparations and going forward and raised the knife and was ready to offer his son on the altar, believing what? In faith, if God's asking me to do this, then God will miraculously raise this child back from the dead. What a beautiful picture. Offer your son, your only son whom you love. And he said, God, if you're asking me to do this, then I believe you'll also raise him back from the dead. And Abraham was there offering his son upon the altar. We know God intervened because he saw his faith. But what James is saying, by offering his son on the altar, he says, don't you see that his faith was working together with his works and that his works, and by his works, his faith was being made perfect or completed. The idea is it was becoming evident. His faith was being validated by his willingness to obey God in that way of working out what he believed. His faith was influencing his works. It was being demonstrated. And that was when God said to him, Abraham, now I know because of what you've done outwardly. Now I know that you fear me and that you trust me. And so James here says, as this event was happening, he's going to say this was fulfilling what actually happened years earlier. Look as he goes on in verse 23, he says the scripture was being fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. So he now refers to the event in Genesis 15, which was when he first got the promise from God that he was going to have this child. And when he first received that promise from God, Abraham, upon hearing God's word, he quotes here from Genesis 15, Abraham believed God. He believed what God said to him, God's word to him, God's promise of how life would be brought into his life. And it says when he believed God and believed God's promise, it says there God accounted or credited into his spiritual bank account this faith or belief for righteousness. So here's what happened. As God saw Abraham's faith exercised towards God and God's promise, God exchanged his faith for righteousness deposited in a spiritual bank account. God made an exchange. Because you've believed, I will now give your spiritual bank account righteousness and you will now be righteous in your standing before me by your faith. Because you believed. 
Of course, this is a beautiful picture of salvation, how God judicially declares a believing sinner to be righteous by their trust and belief in the promise of Jesus Christ. And God was doing this through Abraham. And what James is trying to say in summarization is in Genesis 15, Abraham believed and exercised his sincere faith entering into that relationship with God. And then he says, and then years later, that was evidenced. It worked itself out outwardly in the fruit of that when he was willing to offer Isaac on the altar, which basically that obedient work was validating his faith is real, man. He definitely has faith to be willing to trust God to live in such a way and to do such a thing. That's why he says in verse 24, you see a man is justified by works and not only by faith. What James is trying to convey, again, he's not saying that works produce salvation. What he's saying is this, works, however, are the proof of salvation. He doesn't say works produce salvation. That's unbiblical. But he is saying that works will prove if there's been genuine salvation. Just like Abraham did such an extensive thing, it changed his life. He was willing to do something to trust God as an act of obedience in his outward life that proved what? That years earlier, something happened in Abraham's heart between him and God. And so therefore, his offering of Isaac was the proof of that experience that happened between him and God relation. I love what verse 23 says about Abraham too. Look at it there. He says, Abraham was called the friend of God. The friend of God. God considered him a close friend and related to him accordingly. What a beautiful description, ladies and gentlemen, of what God desires for us as people. To have that kind of a relationship. Not that you just become a religious person. You know, people say that, oh, I see you're becoming religious. You're going over there twice a week now to that mall place. Are you getting your nails done at pinkies? Are you really going to a Bible study? I mean, what are you doing there? <laughs> no, I'm actually going twice a week to worship God. And why? Because there's something happened. You've developed a friendship. You developed a relationship with God that friend that sticks closer than a brother. And that's what God wants, a personal relationship, a commitment. He wants to speak to you and hear you speak to him. This is what it's about. It's about relationship. Becoming a friend of God, a friend of the Lord Jesus. Look, for some of you here this morning, you don't honestly have in your life a genuine friend. But God wants to be your friend. And he'll be a friend who will never forsake you. He'll never let you down. He'll be a friend who sticks closer than a brother and it doesn't matter where you're at or what part of the world you're in, that friend will always be with you. He's a friend. He'll be a companion. He'll help you with your loneliness. He'll tell you things you need to know. He'll walk with you. There's a king that wants to be your friend. His name is Jesus. What an amazing thing to consider. Well, James says not only did that happen with a good Jewish man, but he says likewise also with a Gentile woman. Rahab, the harlot, a prostitute. She was justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. So he quotes from what happened in Joshua chapter 2 where this pagan Gentile woman proved her faith by her works as well. Joshua 2 records how when Joshua sent messengers in to spy out the land, Rahab, this harlot or prostitute, welcomed the messengers of God 
Then she believed the testimony of God's messengers that the judgment of God was about to fall upon her people. And she believed the word of the Lord and what was going to happen. And despite her past, she submitted herself to God and his purposes. She sought deliverance from the wrath to come. She then hid God's messengers and sent them away safely. And what happened? Her sincere faith in the Lord was justified or validated through her works, through her actions. It changed her life. She began to think differently, to live differently. She even put the red cord, remember, in her window so she could be spared when the judgment of God fell upon Jericho. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 11, by faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. And by faith the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe. Again, another picture of salvation. By her faith she put the red cord in her window and the judgment of God passed over. The point James is trying to convey here about Rahab and Abraham both doesn't matter what your background or who you are. He's saying whenever a person has had a real encounter with the Lord, they won't be the same afterwards. It will change them. It will transform who they are. It will cause them to do things differently because why? Because the life of God has entered into their soul and that affects a person. And so they begin to live out their life differently in a measurable way. Now, though he said it with great repetition, you say, I know, I've heard it many times. James says it once more in verse 26. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so also, in case you missed it, faith without works is dead also. This time he uses an analogy of a physical body being without the spirit. And again, our spirit, the Bible teaches us, is is what animates or gives life to this physical body, this frame. The spirit is the true you. It's the lasting eternal part of who you are. And your spirit, which is eternal, which is the true you, is going to live forever and ever. That inhabits your physical body. These bodies, ladies and gentlemen, though we put such great emphasis on them, they're just a mechanism to express your spirit. It allows me to say things that I want to say. It allows me to embrace. It allows me to listen. It allows me to touch and experience this world. Our body is just an instrument that our spirit is revealed through. And he says here, when a person dies, their spirit, the eternal part of them, departs from their body. And when their spirit departs from their body, it leaves the body, what? A lifeless corp. And then the body is useless. Why? Because it has no life in it anymore. And the point he's driving home, in the same way, professing to have faith, but never expressing it through outward works, never living for the Lord, is an indication that that's dead faith, it's just lifeless words. And what God doesn't want us to miss is just like a person's spirit is invisible, faith is invisible. So therefore, God has given us this thing called works to reveal our invisible faith to manifest that we have genuine faith going on inside of us. If there is no expression in the Christian life in how we live, no demonstration of it, though we claim to have spiritual life, it could be that we're still spiritually dead. If there's no manifestation of the Christian life, that there's not the life of Christ being demonstrated. James' concern, don't miss it, James' concern is not to instruct people how to get saved. That's not what this passage is about. James's concern is challenging people whether they're saved or not. Jesus, in concern, said as well, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, 
but you don't do the things that I say. That is, if we profess something with our mouths, but we don't match it with a spiritual practice, something's wrong and we should examine that. That's important. He says in 2 Corinthians 13, examine yourselves as to whether you're in the faith. Test yourself. And here's why. Because one day, every person in this room, the eternal part of you, your spirit is going to depart from your body. And it is either going to go into the presence of God in heaven or it's going to depart to the everlasting fire and punishment of hell. Your spirit, you're going to keep living. You don't really die. Your spirit is going somewhere. What you decide while you live in this body determines where your eternal spirit and the rest of your destiny will experience the remainder of forever and ever and ever. That's not something to not be sure about. It's something to be very sure about. And today, if you're not sure, reconcile that. Are you ready to die? You can settle that this morning. And for those of us who are Christians, and we know that we're Christians, has our relationship with the Lord maybe been reduced to nothing other than just kind of mere words anymore? We're always talking the spiritual talk, but we're not really doing too good walking the spiritual walk. Maybe it's an occasion for us to say, Lord, would you fill me afresh with the life and power of your spirit so I can get back to work for you, Lord, and I can get back to serving you the way that I once did? Would you pray with me?